The following is a sermon by Pastor Jordan Rogers. You can find sermon videos at www.youtube.com slash Jordan Neal Rogers. Thank you for listening today. This morning we're in Acts chapter 4, beginning there in verse 1 down through 22. I had a... uh, Interesting happen. An interesting thing happened not too terribly long ago. Uh, many of you are very well acquainted with my family, and you know uh, my two sons very well, Eli and Josiah. Uh, Josiah really, really loves Star Wars, right, buddy? Josiah and Eli, they love Star Wars, and uh, so Josiah, he has all of these figurines, the Star Wars figurines, and. Um, how many of you have watched Star Wars? Anybody? Okay. Okay, so there's a bunch of people in here who've watched Star Wars. I'm going to get you to participate with me just a little bit and see if, if you can hum a little bit of that theme song uh, with me, see if I remember how it goes. Somebody start it off for me here. <laughs> yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that's not it. That's the dark side. That's the dark side. So what is it now? You're nerds too, so you know it. I don't know it. I'm not a nerd, okay? All right? Y'all know it though, all right? So Josiah and Eli, they know that. They know it by heart. They watch all the movies. They know all the names. And, uh, and, I, and I pick with Josiah a little bit because when he's playing with his figurines and he's walking around the house, um, he'll, he'll stack them up on the washing machine or the sink or whatnot, and he can't play in silence. He has got to be singing the theme song to whatever he's playing with. So he may have Darth Vader and these guys out, and it's dun, 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 dun. And here I am on, on the weekends or whatnot, I'll sit at the dinner table, and I'm, I'm trying to study and get prepared for a Sunday, and I'm working there, and there's Josiah walking around the house Dun, 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 dun. I feel like he has to narrate his life most of the time. It's really, really neat. But uh, so one time I said, I said, boys, y'all come here. And they came here and they were talking to me. And uh, I said, guys, when I'm sitting at the table and I'm studying the Bible and I'm, I'm trying to get a sermon together, I don't mind y'all playing. I don't mind y'all having fun. But just remember, I'm trying to read and think and I need a little bit of quiet so can y'all please just give me a little bit of time of quiet? And uh, like, okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know how that goes. Yes, sir. We'll do that. So it was quiet for a little while this one day. And uh, so I, I had this quiet, and I was taking that, and I was reading my Bible. I had about three other books there, and I've got my word processor up, and I'm, I'm writing up a sermon and studying these things. And I was getting really into it, and I was focused, and it was like I had drowned everything else out. And Josiah uh, creeped up behind me. I didn't know he was there. And all I see behind me was two figurines come up, and then I hear, And I was so focused that it startled me, and I grabbed the table, and I'm scared. I'm like, Josiah, you cannot do that. Would you please be quiet? And he turned to me and said, Daddy, I can't be quiet. I said, I know, Josiah, you can't be quiet. And uh, 
it's interesting the connection there with what we're studying this morning. What I want you to see from this text, just summarize here in just this one sentence, is that though sinners seek to silence the message of Jesus, we must boldly to de- declare it to a world in need. Those sinners seek to silence the message of Jesus. We must boldly declare it to a world in need. I don't normally tell you the titles of my sermons, but I did title this one in particular. I titled it, We Can't Shut Up. It is can't. It's not can't. You know what I'm talking about. Can't is different than can't. Can't is cannot, and it's a conjunction there. Can't is cannot turned into can't plus ain't. So it's can't. It just means I absolutely cannot. There's no question. I cannot shut up. So this is we can't shut up. If you look here in Acts chapter 4, you recall a little bit of the background, what has taken place. Peter and John, apostles of Jesus, had been on their way up to the temple at 3 p.m. in the afternoon to pray. There was a crippled man coming up alongside them, asking for alms, asking for money. And Peter turned to him and said, hey man, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I say to you, rise up. And Peter reaches down and he grabs that man's right arm. This man had been crippled from his mother's womb. And he raises that man up on his feet. Immediately, his ankles and his feet took up strength and the man began to run and to walk and to leap and to praise God because he was once broken and now he's restored. He was a crippled man, but now he's walking. And he takes that opportunity. The first steps he takes is going in the temple, praising God. He obviously comes out of that temple and Peter and John find themselves gathering there at Solomon's porch, at Solomon's portico on the inside of the temple complex. And there is such commotion because this man is screaming at the top of his lungs, praise to the Lord. All of these other people are obviously being very rambunctious. And so all these thousands of people run to Peter and John and the once crippled man there at Solomon's porch. And Peter sees this as an opportunity. Peter sees this as an opportunity to declare to all of these people that the same power that raised this man up off of the ground to walk is the same power that raised Jesus, who had been crucified, raised him from the dead, and there is forgiveness of sins in his name, everlasting life in his name. And there were thousands of people there that day. In fact, the text is going to tell us that there were thousands of people that gave their life to the Lord Jesus. They were born again as a result of the pre- preaching that was performed on the platform of that miracle. Now it says there in verse 1 of Acts 4, and as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John preaching right there in Solomon's portico, the priests, here's a list, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That verb came upon them. Every time it is used in the New Testament, it is used in such a way that there is a sudden appearance of somebody. And it's not a sudden appearance as though it were glad tidings. These people that suddenly appear, they rush upon someone. They do so in order to enact violence. So you see what's happened here now. All these other people are rejoicing. They are marveling at what has happened. They are believing on the Lord Jesus. And yet you see now the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they rush upon Peter and John. They're not happy about this. 
In fact, it says in verse 2 that they were greatly annoyed. They were grieved of spirit. These men were furious because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, you see them there in verse 1. They at that time were the leaders of the temple. They were the ones who held right over the ministry of the temple. These were the religious aristocracy. This was the leaders of Jerusalem, the ruling parties, all those who had charge over the Jewish people. They now rush upon Peter and John. They're going to see what's going on and they're going to snuff it out. And the text says that they were greatly annoyed for two reasons reasons. One, they are preaching and teaching in Jesus's name. These men hated Jesus. This was the same mob of people that murdered Jesus, not but 60 days before this. They hated Jesus, so now they're really ticked off. It's like we killed Jesus, but we just can't keep him dead. We can't even keep his apostles silent about Jesus. Now they're in our workplace, in our temple, and they're proclaiming Jesus. But not only are they proclaiming Jesus, they are also declaring the resurrection of the dead. It's an interesting conflict that occurs there because the Sadducees, the ruling party of the Jews at that time, the Sadducees denied the immortality of the soul. They denied that there was any life after this. What they taught was that when a person dies, that's it. They are done. They are wiped out clean. They would be annihilationists. We know that that's not true in the Bible. The Bible tells us that we go on and on forever. David says that when he goes to the Lord, that he will dwell in his presence forever. The Bible tells us it's appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Our souls were created to be immortal. They go on and on forever, but the Sadducees didn't agree with that. See, they denied Scripture. They didn't believe that Scripture was their sole authority of faith and practice. And for them, religion was not about getting to God. For them, religion was a way of ruling over the community. Religion was a way of having an appearance in the community, appearing to be religious, appearing to be spiritual, and having authority over people. But religion had no value whatsoever for the life to come because they denied that there was even a life to come. People who live for this life only are pitiable. That's why some people say that these people are rightly named, and you see how they are sad, you see. They're very sad about this life. They have no hope. You'll get that here in a little while. You can think about that later. They have no hope in this life. Religion is all about what they can get out of it in this life, but there is no hope in God. For them, church and religion is absolutely, utterly soulless. You realize it is possible. It is possible to do church. It is possible to claim the title of Christian and to live life completely soulless, completely uncommitted to God, getting everything out of this life that you can with the appearance of religion, but not having any of the power of eternal life. It is very possible. These men prove that rule to be true. And so they come upon, upon these men, Peter and John, and they are very angry. They are greatly annoyed and irritated because they're preaching about Jesus and they're declaring the resurrection of the dead through him. 
So what did they do in verse 3? And they arrested, literally, they laid hands upon them in violence. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. You see, Jewish law prohibited them from having any sort of trial at night. They're going to try to condemn Peter and John, even though they know Peter and John are doing the right thing. They're going to try to do the wrong thing and condemn them. They just want to make sure they do the wrong thing in the right way. I want to make sure that they have that trial in broad daylight. You remember they didn't show Jesus the same courtesy. You remember when they tried Jesus, when Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, there in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas tried Jesus the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Annas tried him there in the dead of night, the same night that Peter was there in that courtyard and he watched from a distance and he denied the Lord three times. They didn't show Jesus that kind of courtesy, but they're going to throw Peter and John into jail and wait until the morning. Look at verse 4. Amidst all this opposition, look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Just counting the men there, they're counting about 5,000 people, including the women and the youth. You're looking at anywhere between 10 and 15,000 people that heard the word that Peter and John preached, saw the miracle that took place there in the temple complex, and they believed and called upon the Lord Jesus amidst much, much op opposition. Understand this, a lot of times we pray that people won't be persecuted. We pray that Christians won't go through difficulties. But one of the things you have to understand when you read Scripture is that the preaching of the gospel thrives amidst opposition. You'll see here in a little bit that opposition provides opportunity. Opposition provides opportunity for proclamation of the gospel. Peter uses this healing as a platform to declare Jesus, and just 5,000 men believed in the Lord Jesus. This is one of the greatest proofs of the validity of the resurrection. Think about this, because this number could refer to two things. It could either refer to 5,000 men that were totaled in the church, the early church. You remember that 3,000 people were born again on the day of Pentecost, just a little while before this. Now it says the number of men had grown to 5,000. Maybe, maybe Luke is recording that 5,000 men were born again that day, or maybe he's recording that 5,000 men were now a part of the church. Either way, that is a lot of people, because understand this, they started out with 12 apostles and 120 disciples. And in a matter of 60 days, the church multiplied to over 5,000 people. 60 days, 5,000 people. This is the same Jesus that was crucified in their midst. And yet now thousands of people are believing in him. Why would they believe in him? because he had been raised from the dead. That's the only explanation. That is a proof of the resurrection for us. Look at verse 5. On the next day, they wait until sunlight. Look at this list of people. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest. He is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was the high priest at this point. But before that, remember, he was the one that hold that sham of a trial uh, for Jesus the night that he was betrayed. With Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. You see the scene change that's taking place? 
The rulers of the temple and the Sadducees rush upon Peter and John. All they can think to do is to arrest them in order to shut them up. So they throw them in jail that night. The crowds disperse. They all go home because it's evening. And when morning comes, they take Peter and John and the crippled man out of prison and they have them in their midst. And now it's not the myriad of people who were believing in Jesus. Now it's the Sanhedrin. Now it is the ruling party of the Jews. It is the Jewish aristocracy, the very vicious, foaming at the mouth mob that put Jesus to death 60 days before this. That's who Peter and John are standing before now. They are in a courtroom with the very people that murdered their Lord and Savior. Put yourself in that situation and ask yourself if you were in that situation and you were looking those murderers right in the face and you had, there it is, your day in court. You had your day in court and you had the opportunity to say whatever you wanted to say to these men. What would you say? If you were able to hypothetically you're in a courtroom and you are able to look the man in the eye, the man who broke into your home and took a loved one's life. You're able to look him in the eyes in a court and tell him anything that you want. Would you point your finger at him? Would you ridicule him and say, how dare you do what you did? You offer him no grace, no mercy, no hope because he's going to get what he deserves. That's the situation that Peter and John are in. But look at what Peter does here. It says in verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? In the Greek, that word you, that pronoun, humes, is actually stationed there at the end of the sentence. It's almost sitting there in an emphatic way. It essentially has the meaning where you could, you could read it legitimately like this. By what power or by what name was this done by you? Who are you to do such a thing? Who are you to perform such a miracle? This has a scornful taste to it. Because in verse 13, they're going to call them ignorant, uneducated men, common people. Who are you to do miracles in the temple? Who gave you this authority? Who gave you this power? This is not a peaceful inquisition here. It's not a peaceful or a happy questioning. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 through 12 is Peter's response. It's his sermon here. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Every time you read of the apostles in the Bible, they're full of the Holy Spirit. Men doing the works of God, full of the Spirit of God. You ought not try to do things on God's behalf if you're not full of the Holy Spirit. So it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. There's no fear. You don't hear any fear whatsoever in Peter's words. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Peter's taking his life into his hands, isn't he? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter has no fear whatsoever in declaring the name of Jesus to the very people that were trying to silence him. He looks them in the face with boldness. And in fact, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
He has no problem pointing out their sin. We ought not have any problem whatsoever in pointing out sin in this world. We ought not do it in a judgmental way or a, a condemning fashion or a hateful way. It ought always be done in love. But you cannot declare forgiveness of sins unless people actually acknowledge those sins. So we can't be afraid to call sin what it is. Call sin what God calls it. Peter has no apprehension. He's standing there. He is by his lonesome. It's just he, John, the once crippled man, and the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands there and he says, this Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Don't you know that that had to infuriate them? Because Peter is pinpointing exactly who he's talking about. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, notice the contrast. He says, whom you crucified, you maligned him, you mocked him, you scorned him. Then he adds, whom God raised from the dead. They mock him, God magnifies him. They kill him, God raises him from the dead. They looked at Jesus the exact opposite, the way that God the Father, the God they say they worshiped, they look at Jesus the exact opposite the way that Yahweh does. It's my prayer that every one of us sees Jesus rightly. We see Jesus for who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one crucified for sinners and raised from the dead. And we call Jesus who he is, our Savior and our Lord. We glorify him just the same way that God the Father does. These men look at Jesus the exact opposite of the way that the God they say they serve does. Look at verse 11. He continues, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting there from Psalm 118. And essentially the gist of Psalm 118 is the psalmist is writing about how he is oppressed, he is persecuted, he is chased to and fro because of his love for God, because of his righteousness. That's why he is persecuted. And he rests on God as his rock, the rock of his salvation. He rests on the Lord. And yet the people who come after him have rejected the very God who protects the psalmist. It says, the stone that you rejected has become my foundation, what I stand upon. And when Peter quotes Psalm 118, everybody there in that gathering knew that psalm. Everyone there knew that psalm was talking about the Messiah, talking about God's Messiah, how God would take his Christ, the Son of God, and he would make him the foundation of the kingdom of God, the cornerstone on which the entirety of the kingdom of God was built. And Peter looks at them and he says, the kingdom of God that you say that you serve, you have rejected the very rock that God has built it upon. You have rejected Jesus. Jesus, and the one you rejected has become the rock of ages. And he is the foundation of God's kingdom that you yourselves now find yourselves outside of. Seems like a very condemning thing to say, very poignant thing to say, but look at this. Would you give these murderers an opportunity to get right? If you had your day there in the courtroom, would you give that murderer grace? Look at what he does here in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. That's an offer. It's a statement, but that's an offer. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Notice what Peter has done here first off. Peter, he's talking about the healing of this man, the healing of this once crippled man. And yet Peter links the healing to God's authority, to Jesus's authority to save people from their sins. The only one who could heal a crippled man is also the only one who can forgive people of their sins. That's exactly what Peter is saying. And he says there is salvation in no one else. We need to understand this clearly because teachers in this world will tell you the exact opposite. The Bible asserts very uh, clearly, very dogmatically that Jesus is the exclusive way to heaven. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus makes himself the exclusive access to the kingdom of God. Not all roads lead to heaven. There is one road that leads to heaven, and it's not a road. It is the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus. In fact, in John eleven twenty five, 25, the Bible says that Jesus said to her, the sister of Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. He says, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. Jesus claims himself to be the exclusive access to heaven. You'll hear people in this world tell you that all roads lead to the Lord or all roads lead to heaven. This is a heresy known as universalism. It's a false doctrine known as universalism, that if you'll just be sincere about what you believe, you will end up in heaven. That's not a teaching of Scripture. That's a teaching of hell. That's a teaching of Satan. It leads people to hell because people believe that if they're just sincere about what they feel, sincere about what they believe, that in the end, everything is going to be made right and all people will go to heaven. That's not the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is that those who place their faith in Jesus go to heaven. Everyone else will go to hell for their sins. Peter makes that very clear. He doesn't argue about it. He states it very emphatically. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, literally means that they, they were caught by it. It's like they were slapped in the face by it. When they perceived that they were uneducated, a grandma toy is what it means. It literally means they were without grammar. They were without word. These men are illiterate. And perceived that they were illiterate, uneducated, common men. They were astonished. That word common, I don't even know that I need to translate it. It's the Greek word idiotai. These men are illiterate idiots. It says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and perceived that they were illiterate idiots, they were astonished. 
Because here are these men preaching with boldness and clarity from the Old Testament scriptures to the teachers of the law. They are declaring the resurrection of Jesus in his name. And they are raising this man up to walk in the name of Christ. And they're saying, these are just common men. These are country folk. Who are these? This is amazing. This is astonishing. Common people aren't so common when they come in contact with Jesus. God tends to take, in fact, it is the pattern of God's ministry that God takes the lowliest among us, the most unwise among us, the most ignoble among us, and he takes those for his own. He redeems them, and he says, you know what? If I can raise these people up, you can see the power of God in them. Here's two fishermen, two uneducated fishermen preaching to the most learned men in the country. Common people aren't so common when they come in contact with Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul he argues at length that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he goes on and on and on there in chapter 1, and he concludes and he says, so that this saying is true, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because nobody smarts their way to heaven. Nobody works their way to heaven. No one is just so exceptional and so educated and so acclaimed that they go to heaven. No, God takes common people. God takes humble people. God uses ordinary people. You could probably finish it to do extraordinary things. Don't, don't discount what God can do through you, even if you consider yourself, I'm just a common person. You're in good company. Peter and John were fishermen. They grew up on a fishing boat. They sure knew how to mend fishing nets. I don't know that they knew so much how to write, but God took those two ordinary men and they penned much of the New Testament that you're reading. Common people aren't so common when they come in contact with Jesus. Look at verse 13, the latter half. It says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Where did these men go to school? Where did Peter and John go to school? They didn't attend the finest rabbinical seminaries there in Jerusalem. They didn't attend Jerusalem Theological Seminary. They didn't go to school. You know what they did? They walked with the word of life for three and a half years. It's laying there at his feet, hearing his word, hearing his teaching. And when the teachers of the law examine these men, you know what they hear? They hear the words of Jesus. Peter and John, they're saying the same things Jesus said. They are sounding like Jesus. They have become more and more like their master. It's my prayer for each and every one of us that when people come in contact with us, they can perceive that we have been with Jesus. We've been with his word. You know, they say of Paul Bunyan, the guy who, or John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, but John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was so ingrained with the word of God, had read the word of God so much, they said that if you cut John Bunyan's arm, that he would bleed Bibline. You could recognize that he had been with Jesus. 
It's my prayer that we're that kind of people. Look at verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's kind of hard to argue with the facts. You know what you can do when you're confronted with facts? You can either accept them or you can suppress them. But you cannot reject the facts. You can either accept them or you can suppress them. So look at what they do, verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. They say, Peter, John, crippled man, y'all go home. We're going to take you back to the cell so that we can talk in our group therapy session. They're going to have a little small group meeting, which uh, most oftentimes, at least you see it here, a small group meeting. It may just well be called pooled ignorance. They, have a con- they confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. What should we do with these men? You know what they should have done? They should have taken Peter and John and made them the head of the council. Because obviously Peter and John know something about God that they don't. Obviously Peter and John aren't just out there talking, they are doing The Sanhedrin at the point, the Sadducees, they deny the scriptures. They deny the power of God. They are all bark and no bite. They are all word and no power. And yet here are some common fishermen coming into their midst, and they're proclaiming the resurrection from the dead in Jesus' name, and they're making crippled men to walk. They should have taken Peter and John and made them the head of the council. Look at verse 17. They're not going to do that. They're not going to acknowledge the facts. They're just going to suppress them. Verse 17 says, but in order that they may spread no further among the people, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. They say, we can't deny the facts, but we're going to attempt to silence them. We'll attempt to silence the fact. Please understand this clearly. In all of the millennia of the existence of this earth, since the revelation of God, the people of this world have not been able to successfully argue against the work of God or his word. The Bible has come under more scrutiny than all of the other books in the world combined, and yet the Bible comes out on top, the inspired and errant word of God. The world cannot argue against the works of God, against the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And so since they cannot argue successfully against the works of God, their chief tactic, the chief ultimate tactic of Satan is not to win the argument. It is to silence the argument. There's just not going to be any debate. Don't push that religion on me. Don't talk about Jesus in the classroom or at work. That is for church. There's separation of church and state is what they say. So just don't, don't talk about it. They can't argue successfully, so they will seek to silence it. Understand that it is the ultimate tactic of Satan to silence your witness of Jesus. He can't win the argument. You will win the argument. You will win the day. Satan's tactic is to shut you up. You just don't even engage in the fight. 
Satan wants you to be apathetic. Satan wants you to listen to the, the threats of the world. Say, you, you, you can't say that here in the classroom or you're going to lose your job. You can't say that here in the workroom or you're going to lose your job. We're going to have to put you on probation here. We, we can't be talking about religion in the workplace. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Look at Peter's response. But Peter and John, verse 19, answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter says, look, guys, I don't know what you're thinking but you just issued a command to me that violates the command of God. You're telling me not to speak or preach or teach in the name of Jesus when the Lord Jesus told me to speak in his name. So if you want to disobey God, you go right on about it. But as for me and John and the rest of the apostles and disciples, we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have seen the risen Lord and we can't shut up. We can't not talk about what we've seen. Notice that they just outright deny those who are in rulership, those who are leading over them. They deny them and say, we will not obey that law. We will not obey that command. I am here to show you this morning from this text of Scripture that you are never obligated in this world to not speak the name of Jesus. There is no law that any nation or person in this world can make that prohibits you from sharing the name of Jesus. They do not have that right to do that. It is a God-given right, commandment, and mandate to speak the name of Jesus in this world. So Peter says, we, we can't shut up. We can't not talk about what we have seen and heard. I think Peter probably remembers Jesus' words there in Matthew 10, 28. When Jesus tells them as they go about sharing the gospel, he says, Fear not those who can kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and spirit in hell. So Peter says, whether it's right to fear you or fear God, we're going to fear God. We're going to follow him. Understand this, that if you don't talk about Jesus, if the church does not talk about Jesus in this world and people die without knowledge of Jesus, they will spend eternity in hell. And so any law that prohibits you from sharing the name of Jesus can go to that same place. You need to speak the name of Jesus. You need to talk about what you have seen and heard, what you have experienced God doing in your life. Because guess what? We're not Peter and John here. We're the crippled man standing right there who's been raised up from Jesus. The pieces put back together. We are living, breathing testimony of the miraculous work of the gospel of Jesus in our lives. And you can't help but tell people about that if Jesus has truly raised you up off of your crippled mat, if he's truly changed your life, and no one in this world has the right to tell you to shut up. Say the same thing that Peter does. He says it very politely, but in a roundabout way. He just says, sorry guys, but me and John, we, we can't shut up. 
no matter what you say. Look at verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, see that all bark, no bite. They're not doing anything. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. You say, why? Why did they find no way to punish them? Maybe when they conferred together, maybe they said, hey, what does God think about this? You notice in their deliberations, they have no, no uh, questions about what God thinks. They don't really care what God thinks. They care about what other people think. And that's evident in why they don't punish them. Look at that. And when they have further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Why? Not because of God's command. It says, because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. They couldn't do what they wanted to do because they were scared of other people's reactions. They were scared of other people's opinions. I've said this to you before, but it bears mentioning again. The opinions of men are a cruel master. The opinions of men are a cruel master. And if you are ruled by the opinions of men, if you are ruled by what other people think, you will live a miserable life. You are free to be captive to the opinion of God alone. He alone is Lord over you. He alone is the one who made you. He alone is the one who gave his son Jesus to die and be raised on your behalf. You are captive alone to the opinion of God. And those who have submitted themselves for the praise of man, they want to live for the commendment of men. They are on a suicidal path because they will, they will kill their morals they will kill their integrity. They will sacrifice a life of righteousness in order to be men pleasers. They fear those who can kill the body. They don't fear those who can kill the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. The opinions of men are a very cruel master. But look at verse 22. Why, could, why are the people in a frenzy? Why are they standing up with Peter and John? It says, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This man had lived a full life of being broken, a full life of wretchedness in front of all of these people, and yet he's been restored. Does he run from the people who've seen him broken? No. No, the fact that they have seen him broken makes his life an even, an even louder testimony. It makes it more evident of what God has done in his life. Just as I did a few weeks ago, I want to commend you. Don't run from people who know your past. Live your new life in Jesus in front of them, and that will be in and of itself an incredibly powerful testimony that no one can deny. A testimony to the power of the gospel to take people like you and I, broken people, and put the pieces back together. Nobody could deny. You notice that? Nobody in this text denied the work of Jesus in this man's life. Nobody in this text denied the power of God through the preaching of Peter and John. They just say, hey, don't talk about it. No, we, we, can't stop, we can't stop talking about this. We can't be quiet about this. We have to tell people about what's gone on. 
You can imagine Peter understands very well that if he doesn't speak about Jesus, that there are people there in Jerusalem who will go to hell and pay for an eternity for the sins that they have committed. This is why we said there in the beginning that those sinners seek to silence the message of Jesus. We must boldly declare it to a world in need. No matter what anybody says or thinks about you or opposition that comes against you, don't be fearful of sharing the good news of Jesus to the people you come in contact with. Thank you for listening today. I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and tune in next time as we study God's Word together.